Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, many times we run into difficult doctrines, things that are difficult for us to comprehend because we're trying to understand how you think and how you operate which is beyond our frame of reference. But we know that your word is comprehensible to us and that you have uh, communicated, revealed things to us a specific way so that we can, to some degree, understand it. It may not be understood the first, second, or third, or twentieth time that we hear it, but eventually, as we continue to study the word, these things will become clear to us. Father, we pray tonight as we continue our study dealing with your sovereignty and your plan for human history and your sovereign will over the nations, we pray that we might come to a better understanding of uh, what we studied last week and this week, that this will be uh, more clear to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're in Romans 9. Romans 9, where God is dealing with the plan for Israel. Now, the most important thing to understand here, as I started off last time, is context. Context, 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 and the context so far is God dealing with the nations, with a corporate entity of Israel, God's plan for Israel. Now, the reason I stress that is because just today, as I've been reading through some additional commentaries, I'm reading through one by a Dallas Seminary professor who's more, uh, not even a contemporary of mine, he's younger, uh, and a guy who has a reputation of being a, a free grace guy. But I've had some problems with things that he's written in his commentary on Romans, and I disagree here. He quotes several commentators, Cranfield, um, I guess Leon Morris is another one. There's two or three others that he quoted that are Reformed who recognize that Romans 9 to 11 is not dealing with individuals at all. It's dealing with corporate entities. But then he disagrees with them, as many scholars also do, say, well, when you start getting down into this middle of chapter 9, how can you talk about God's grace and mercy to a corporate entity because they're made up of individuals, so it's got to apply to both? And the fuzzy, the fuzzy thinking that goes with that is that God deals with Israel as a, as a corporate entity, and even though there are many individuals within that corporate entity that go a different way. And he always does that. So there's a plan, an individual plan of salvation and justification for individuals within Israel. And then there's God's plan for the national entity the ethnic Israel, and the, that's the, an important distinction. 
And the only time we're dealing with individual personal salvation in Romans is when Paul uses the term justification. When Paul uses the term in Romans 9 to 11 of salvation, he's not talking about individual personal justification or personal salvation. He's talking about the deliverance of Israel corporately because they came under divine judgment in AD 70. And in terms of God's future plan, there has to be a restoration to the land when the kingdom is set up. That's what we're talking about here, that God has not foregone, forgotten uh, his promise to Israel, that he is still going to fulfill the promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Daniel, Jeremiah, all the way through. And so what he's illustrating here is not personal. It's not personal salvation or decision-making. It's national entities and God's sovereignty over uh, the direction of history. So as we went through this, we saw from Moses that that's exactly what was happening with the illustration from, from Moses and the quote from that uh, we looked at there uh, from uh, in verse 15 that came from Exodus 33:19, And the uh, conclusion there was that God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. The context had nothing to do with justification. It doesn't have to do here. It has to do with how God is choosing to demonstrate his mercy upon nations in terms of God's plan. And that he has chosen to show additional mercy to Moses, which he did not show to all of the Israelites. But on the other hand, he's going to also show a measure of what is called, and it's not a good translation, hardening God's judgment on Pharaoh, but it's really upon the nation of Egypt and God's plan for Egypt. And it's not this choice of who God will bless as a nation in terms of his choice of Israel versus his uh, not choosing for special blessing other nations is a matter of God's will, not human will, human ideas. That's verse 16. It's not of him who wills. It, it wasn't Moses had a different plan. God, you need to do this with the, with the Israelites. You need to walk with them and be close to them as was your original plan. And God says, oh, we're going to plan B. You don't, you don't understand all the, all the issues or my just, justice and righteousness. So it's not of him who wills nor of him who runs but of God who shows mercy. God is God as the sovereign creator has the right to oversee human history. But in doing so, God has also determined that man will have his own volition. Now, there's a great illustration of this that is difficult for people to understand. There's not an illustration of this that's easy. And it's not one that you and I can fully comprehend, but we can understand it. Every time we talk about inspiration, how does God inspire the scriptures? God so superintends the writers of scripture that what? That without violating their individual personality, writing styles, background, culture, God guarantees that they write what he wants them to write, but it's written from their personality. It's not dictation. See, if it was just God's sovereignty saying, this is what I want written, then God would dictate it to them. But it's not. Peter and Paul and John all write very, very differently. Uh, the writer of Hebrews uses a very high, um, high form of Greek, 
whereas Peter's is a little more rudimentary. John's is very simple. Paul's is much more complex. But this shows that their individual volition and personality, style, all those factors are not over, overridden by God. He is using that. So, so that is God as a sovereign ca- causing things to happen the way he wants them to happen in history. And I tried to explain this at the end last time, that that's cause and effect. We think of cause and effect only in terms of our frame of reference within creation. But this is God outside of creation causing things in such a way that it doesn't violate individual volition or responsibility. And we can't comprehend that because we don't have a frame of reference for creator causation. We only have a frame of reference for creaturely causation. And so we have to understand that God's ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. There's an analogy that's why our knowledge of God is referred to as analogical. It is not univocal. Univocal means one and the same. It's not identical. So we always have to understand that. Now, in the Old Testament, the next illustration that God used from Exodus had to do with Moses. And <clears throat> and he says in Exodus 7.3, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And everybody goes, ah, God violated his volition. Well, if we think about it logically, if God violated his volition, then how can Pharaoh be held accountable for the decisions that he makes? And as I pointed out last time, even within the texts, God is pointing out that that Pharaoh made those decisions on his own apart from God. The problem that we have is this word that English translators have chosen to use of hardening. And it makes it sound as as if God just reaches down there and says, I'm pushing you on negative volition, and I'm going to make you stay there and be hostile, and you don't have anything to say about it. But this word, especially the primary word that's used to translate here, chazak, is not translated that way anywhere else in the Old Testament. And that's significant. I'll show you some other examples of that. And another way in which one of the other words is translated is stubborn. And it's this, this idea of, of, as I pointed out last time, of strengthening the will. So the first thing we have to understand, though, is there's this dynamic. We went to Romans 1, which is where you have to start, that at the point of God consciousness, every Egyptian, including the Pharaoh, had an understood that God existed. They understood from general revelation that God existed, and they went, no, I'd rather worship uh, Ra, Amptah, and all the other uh, deities in the pantheon, and I'm going to substitute these creaturely inventions for God rather than worship the or try to find out about the true creator God. And so they start on negative volition, and they've made that decision, and they continue down that track for 20, 30, 40, 60, 70, 80 years, and then along comes Moses, and God is working out his purposes in history, and so God isn't tweaking their volition. It's already there. God is strengthening it. Now, some people say, well, I don't understand how that works. Well, I don't think there's one of us. Well, there may be, but I don't. If you've been a Christian for very long, I don't think there's one of us who hasn't said, Lord, 
I really need to be stronger. I need to make this decision, and I want you to just strengthen my will, enable me to do this. The Holy Spirit enables us, and he He um, influences us, but he never overrides our volition. He strengthens us, and, we, and there are scriptures that use similar terminology, but it's not... But that's in a positive direction. Everybody goes, well, that's okay. <laughs> See, you're positive, and you just want God to help you in your to maintain that positive volition and to strengthen you through the Holy Spirit. Well, Pharaoh's the flip side. He's negative, and God's just helping him to stay negative, to carry it out to the end result. This doesn't have to do with his salvation. It has to do with the full demonstration of the might and the power of the throne of heaven over Egypt and Egyptian religion so that God will, it will be clear to the Israelites and clear to the Egyptians and clear to the whole world that God is the one who has miraculously delivered the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. Now, what happens in Romans 1 is we get this foundational understanding about volition. That verse 21, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, I want you to notice that their foolish hearts were darkened. That's a passive tense verb. I mean, a passive voice. It doesn't mean that God darkened their hearts. It means that as a result of their negative volition to God, their souls, their minds, their mentality became dark. They shut out the light of revelation. So when we have these passive forms, like Pharaoh's heart was hardened, where God's not even in the passage, that doesn't mean God's the one performing the action of hardening. That's the result, expressing the result of Pharaoh's own negative volition already. And what they did, which is standard in paganism, they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image made like corruptible man. So God does what? He gives them over. He sort of takes, uh, in the, in, using a small engine uh, metaphor, he takes the governor off so that you want to go in that direction? Okay, I'm going to take the restraints off, and you're going to be able to go that way fast and furiously so that my purposes will be taken care of. You've made the decision, not God. So in Romans 9.17 we read, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this purpose I've raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. This is God's purpose in uh, taking and pushing Pharaoh to the limits of his own volition. Comes, It's a quote from Exodus 9.16, as I pointed out last week. Now, God had announced this to Moses long before he's ever, ever says anything about God hardening their heart when he says to Moses in Exodus 3.19, I'm sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, not even by a mighty hand. This is the role of God's omniscience. It's not just his will. See, the problem with Calvinism and the deterministic, fatalistic flaw in Calvinism is that they look at this and they say, see, it's all God's will. And they exclude his omniscience. But, you know, First Peter 1, 2 says that, that we are uh, 
predestined by according to foreknowledge. Foreknowledge precedes God's choice of, of destiny there. All that's review. Get your mind back into that hard grind where we were last time. Three three words that are used in the Hebrew that are transla- have translated hardened or express this concept. The most important is that first one, chazak, which means, and it's usually translated to be strong or to strengthen, to prevail, uh, to harden only in these contexts in Exodus, to be courageous, uh, to be sore, that's old English for being severe, not having a pain, just being severe. Now, the conclusions we saw last time is that God has mercy on whom he wills. This is not a blanket statement that God has, that every act of God's mercy is based on his sovereign will in terms of justification or in terms of sanctification. This has to do with the context of what God is doing with the destiny of Egypt and what God is doing with the destiny of Israel as a nation. Now, the New Testament word that's translated here is uh, scleruno, which means to harden or to make stubborn. It's only used a couple of times, and it has basically that idea of just intensifying something in its current uh, state. Now we're going to get into some new material. I wanted to look at this word chazak, and where it's not used as hard, because I think that if we use these other words or think about it in how it's used in these other passages, it gives us an understanding that this is not a word talking about overriding someone's volition. Isaiah 35, 3 and 4, God says, encourage the exhausted, and the synonymous parallel is to strengthen the feeble. See, encourage, which is a different word, is parallel to chazak for, for strengthen. So what does strengthen mean in this context? It's a synonym for encourage. Say to those with an anxious heart. See, the anxious heart, that's somebody who's given over to worry, that is the, describes the person who's exhausted and feeble. Say to those with the anxious heart, take courage. See, so the idea of strengthening him is to take courage and to be encouraged and strengthened. It doesn't mean that uh, their will, their volition is being overridden. Isaiah 41.7 is talking about an analogy here in context with a craftsman. Says the, so the craftsman encourages the smelter. That's chazak. The craftsman isn't taking over the will and volition of the one who's doing the smelting. And it's a parable. He who's, and it's a parallel to the next, in the next line. He who smooths metal with the hammer encourages him who beats the anvil. Now the reason I didn't underline the second one is because there's no second verb there. It's not repeated. It's assumed from the first line. That's why in your translations, it's probably in italics. So the craftsman encourages the smelter, and he who smooths metal with the hammer, him who beats the anvil. So again, you don't see this this idea of God or, or of one person overriding the volition of another. It's strengthening them in a, in a, to go in a certain direction. 
Ezekiel 13.22, because you disheartened the righteous. This is a condemnation of the of apostate Israel at the time of uh, going out under the fifth cycle of discipline in 586 B.C. Because you disheartened the righteous with falsehood when I did not cause him grief, but have encouraged the wicked to turn from his wicked way and preserve his life. This is what God was doing, encouraging the wicked to turn from their wicked way and preserve life. It's it's not a sense of overriding their volition and forcing them to go in a certain direction. Ezekiel 22:14 Can your heart endure or can your hands be strong in the days that I will deal with you? I the Lord have spoken and will act. There's that idea of being strong. Ezekiel 30:24 and 25 the idea of strengthening. Here's the big battle between Nebuchadnezzar and Pharaoh Necho at the battle of Carchemish. I think this was 605. And God says, I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon and put my sword in, in his hand, and I will break the arms of Pharaoh so that he will groan before him with the groanings of a wounded man. God's going to intervene in the battle so that Pharaoh Necho loses and, and Nebuchadnezzar wins. Anybody have a problem with that? God has the right to do that. He's not violating their volition. He's directing the course of history. Haggai 2.4, now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, same word all the way through. Take courage also, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord, and work for I am with you. Again, it's that idea of strengthening their will to to complete the task. Now, I saved the best for last. This is uh, five verses or four verses from Daniel 10. And this has the closest parallel. Daniel is getting a vision. He is being visited by an angel. And he says, suddenly one having the likeness of the sons of men. This is an angel appearing, look, like, looks like a human. Touched my lips, then I opened my mouth and spoke, saying to him who stood with me, my Lord, because of the vision, my sorrows have overwhelmed me, and I've retained no strength. And what he saw just wasted him. Verse 17, for how can this servant of my Lord talk with you, my Lord? I'm I'm just speechless is what Daniel said. I'm overwhelmed. I'm speechless. I I cannot deal with what I've just been shown. Verse 18, then again, the the one having the likeness of a man, that's the angel, touched me and strengthened me. It's the same verb in the same stem, PL stem doesn't mean he touched me and hardened me. That wouldn't even make sense. This isn't about the overriding of someone's will. It's just strengthening them, encouraging them, in the same way we pray that God would strengthen us to do the right thing at the right time. Uh, It is sort of like being on a performance-enhancing drugs. It just gives you a little more capability, Okay. You already made the choice to go in the one, one direction. That may not be the best illustration, but it's one that came to mind. Uh, Job 4.3, Behold, you have admonished many, many, he says to God, and have strengthened weak hands. When we're weak, God strengthens us. This isn't a violation of volition. All right. I hope that brings you a little more clarity to what this word group means and how it's translated, that it's not talking about overriding someone's volition, simply enhancing it to accomplish what they want to do already 
and God, so that God can use that for a greater and higher purpose. Now it's going to become clear as we continue that the that the that the whole context here is still dealing with nations and not individuals. Let's go back to Romans nine. This is where we're going to get into that wonderful little uh, illustration related to the potter's wheel, and how many times people read through this. This this for those of you who want to take go through the Bible study methods class. This is one of those great examples of people who can read something and not see what they're reading. We read into things we read what we've been told are there. And we don't even take the time to stop and see that it's not there. We've just heard so many people say that's what it's talking about for so long that we just look at it that way. And that's one of the tough things with Bible study methods. One of the, I've talked to other guys who've come out of strong teaching churches who went through Dallas Seminary. We hit Bible study methods our first year, and we had to take all these blinders off, as it were, and think about what does the text really say? Not what have I been told is there, but what do I read? What do I see? It's a great lesson for anybody who loves Sherlock Holmes. You know, what do I actually see? What is the Bible actually saying? Not, Not what have I been told is there, but what's there and what's not there. So... The second question that the objector comes up with in, in uh, Romans, uh, what is this, 19, Paul puts this words in the mouth of the objector and says, you will then say to me, why does he still find fault? How can God find fault if he's running history? Because even though he is running history, he doesn't override individual volition. But Paul's going to take the answer to another level. He's going to he's he's... In one sense, he's answering the objector like God answered Job. I'm not going to answer it because if I answered it, number one, I can't answer it because I can't understand it. That's what Paul would say. Number two, if I were capable of explaining it, you're not capable of understanding it. That's pretty much what God said to Job when Job says, why did I have to suffer like this? Well, you just have to trust me because you couldn't understand it if I told you. It's beyond your comprehension. So the answer in verse 20 is a very strong answer. But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Who are you in your limited, finite brain to ask God to justify how he's ruling the universe because you don't even have a clue in relation to the vast amount of knowledge that goes into God's omniscience to, uh, to, that leads to all the decisions that he makes in his providential care of creation. And he uses an illustration from the potter that he gets out of Jeremiah. So you need to turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah 18. We, it's really important to look at these, the context of these quotes. He says, Indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Now, this quote comes out of uh, Jeremiah 18, and there are numerous passages in the, uh, in the Scripture that use this potter metaphor for talking about the creature and, and the creator. Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Now, here's the question. Does that, if you just had Romans 9.20 in front of you, 
Would you say that he's talking about an individual or a national entity? It's real easy if you're preset this way to think he's talking about individuals. And everybody wants to apply it that way. Not everybody, but the vast number of people that read it that way. But let's go look at the uh, rest of the statement here, and then we'll go to Jeremiah. Paul then says, doesn't the potter have power over the clay? Doesn't the sovereign creator have the authority to create things the way he wants to? That's his whole point. From the same lump to make one vessel for honor and one for dishonor. And that's not one for heaven and one for hell. Okay, don't read that into it. It's one for honor and one for dishonor. God can raise up Israel for blessing and he can bring judgment upon Egypt, but that doesn't mean that no Egyptians can be saved or that only Jews can be saved and, and uh, none of them will go to, go to the lake of fire. It doesn't say that. Just it's, it's still talking about nations. What if God wanting to show his wrath, that is his right to judge in, within history, wrath almost always refers to God's judgment within history, and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering, he allows the wicked to continue their wickedness uh, for a purpose. Much long-suffering, the vessels of wrath prepared for de- destruction. So what we want to know is, what are the vessels? What's the vessel for honor and the vessel for dishonor? What's the vessel of wrath? Is that a, Are those people or national entities? Let's go to Jeremiah 18. Jeremiah 18.3, then I went down to the potter's house, Jeremiah says, and there he was making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to make. So that's our, that's our analogy. The potter has the right to shape the clay, to mold the clay to, for the purposes that he has in mind. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel. He's not talking to Jeremiah as an individual. He's talking to Israel as a national entity. Can I not do with you as this potter? Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. It's just like, remember, we're talking, the first illustration that, that Paul used was, was dealing with Jacob and Esau. And they were nations, going back to, to, to Genesis, they were nations in the womb of, of their mother. He's not never deals with them as personal individuals, but in terms of the nations that came from them. Same thing we're dealing with here is the nation. <clears throat> so are you in my hand, O house of Israel? The instant I speak concerning a what? What's that word? Concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom. How many people have seen individual salvation here so far? It's not there. He's talking about the de- God's choice of, and of the destiny for nations and kingdoms in history. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, wait a minute, right in the middle of this, that nation has the right to say, wait a minute, I'm going to turn to God. Volition is right in the center of the passage. 
Just because God says, I'm going to do one thing to it, doesn't mean their volition is null and void. Right in the middle of the analogy of the potter, the nation can choose to turn to God. If that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. Incidentally, folks, this is one of the best verses to use for a nation turning to God and God relenting of judgment. Not the passage over in Second Chronicles 7.14, which everybody quotes because they don't know hermeneutics. If a that's from Solomon's dedicatory prayer and God's answer to it. If a nation who, if my people, who it always refers to Israel, who are called by my name, turn back to me, uh, repent and humble themselves, then I will, and I forget the rest of it, I will turn, uh, restore them to, the, to their land. And the land always refers to evil. You can't make that apply to anything else. You know why you can't make it apply to anybody else? Because it's uniquely for Israel. You don't understand the word application if you think it can apply to anything else. That verse actually is an application of this principle. This is the principle. That's an application to Israel. The principle here is any nation against whom I've spoken turns from its evil. Nineveh, when Jonah went there, any nation that turns from its evil... I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. That is the principle. Second Chronicles 7.14 is an application of that divine principle to Israel in God's answer couched within covenant terms. So you can't apply it to anybody else. But you can apply this to other nations. This is the key verse for that. If that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, see, they've reversed course, so now they're not destined for destruction but for blessing. Uh, the instant I speak concerning a nation, concerning a kingdom to plant it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good which I said I would benefit it. Okay? This is the picture. What is the Potter analogy a picture of? God's sovereignty over national destinies, not individual destinies in terms of the lake of fire, heaven or hell. That's not what Jeremiah 18 is talking about. So we go back to Romans 9. And in verse 23, it goes on to say, we could fit this in. Does, uh, let me go back, and I don't, I'm not going to go back to the slide, but in verse uh, 21, it introduced the term vessel. So if we read that, we'd say, Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one individual for honor and one for dishonor? Is that right? No, one nation. So you could you could put in parentheses there one nation for honor and another for dishonor. That's not any different from saying Jacob I loved Esau I hated. It's a choice that one is preferred over the other. It doesn't really mean God despises the second one as we saw because we saw that that from from uh, Genesis uh, I used the quote for dealing with uh, Jacob that Jacob loved Rachel and hated Leah. But he didn't hate Leah. He just didn't prefer Leah over Rachel. He liked Leah. Had a bunch of children by Leah. 
Okay, so verse 22, what if God wanted to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering, the vessels, i.e. the nations of wrath prepared for destruction? And, verse 23 here, the one on the screen, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the individuals of mercy? No, the nations of mercy uh, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he called not of the Jews only, but also the Gentiles. So he's talking about Jew and Gentile within the church. Now, he's going to make application of why God has a sovereign right to do this. Romans 9.25. As he says also in Hosea, so it's sword drill time. We were just in... um, uh, Jeremiah 18, so now let's go to Hosea 2.23. Hosea 2.23. Hosea is right after Daniel. Hosea is the first of the minor prophets. They're not minor because they're uh, in a different key. They're not minor because they're not as significant. They're minor because they're smaller. Actually, all 12 minor prophets are included as one book in the Hebrew canon, just simply referred to as the twelve. Hebrews 2.23, which is up on the screen. Now we see Romans 9.25. He quotes just the last part of Hosea 2.23. That's a little different from your English and and your English and the uh, Hebrew Hosea because he's quoting from the Septuagint translation uh, of of Hosea 2.23. I will call them my people who are not my people and her beloved who is not my beloved. Now, He's just talked about the Gentiles. So in the context of Romans 9, Paul is applying this to now calling and including Gentiles as part of his people. But that wasn't what Hosea was talking about. Hosea 2.23 says, Then I will sow her for myself in the earth, and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who are not my people, You are my people. And they shall say, you are my God. So let's talk about Hosea 2 just a little bit. This second chapter of Hosea reiterates the charges, the indictment against Israel at the time of the, of the, of their destruction in 586 BC, going out under the fifth stage of divine discipline. And the charges are listed and and reiterated from verses 2 down through 13 on why God is removing them from the land. And if you read through that, they are indicted for their unfaithfulness to God, for their uh, spiritual adultery with the idols of the the land, specifically uh, the Baalim, and following all of the different uh, uh, rituals related to the Baalim. And then in verse 13, it concludes, I will punish her for the days of the Baals, or the Baalim, to which she burned incense. She decked herself with earrings and jewelry and went out after her lovers. She was going, she was having a hot dating life going after all these other gods. But me she forgot, says the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. This is God winning 
Israel back to himself. I will give her her vineyards from there in the valley of Achor as a door of hope. She shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came up from the land of Egypt. God is talking about this future time when he will uh, restore Israel to the land. So he jumps from the destruction of 586 to the future restoration, which occurs in the future messianic age. And it shall be in that day, verse 16, and usually when you read that day, a lot of times, uh, most often in the prophets, it's talking about that future day of, of the Lord, that day of redemption for Israel as a nation. It shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. For I will take from her mouth the names of the Baal, Baalim, and they shall be remembered by their name no more. And that day, future time, second advent, beginning of the millennial kingdom. And that day I will make a covenant for them. What's that covenant? That's the new covenant that's put into effect with the house of Israel and the house of Judah when Jesus returns at the second coming. And that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, with the birds of the air, with the creeping things of the ground. Bow and sword of battle I will shatter from the earth to make them lie down safely. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. It shall come to pass in that day that I will answer. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. The earth shall answer with grain, with new wine, with oil. They shall answer Jezreel. That's the valley of Jezreel. Now, this is God saying that, that, that there will finally be the consummation of this marriage between Yahweh and Israel in the millennial kingdom. Then he says in verse 23, this is what we've been, now we've got the context. Then I will sow her for myself in the earth, and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Who is he talking about? Who was the one who had not had mercy? That's Israel in disobedience wasn't another country. It's Israel during the time that they're out under the fifth cycle of discipline and had not obtained mercy. I will have mercy on the one who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who were not my people, who are the ones who are not my people? Those rebellious, obstinate uh, Jews who had rejected Jesus and who are out under the fifth cycle of discipline. I will say to those who are not my people, now, what have they done? They've repented. You are my people. And they shall say, you are my God. So remember, many times, some of you are new, you haven't heard this. We've gone through the four ways in which the Old Testament is quoted and applied in the New Testament. Number one was literal prophecy and literal fulfillment. That would be, for example, Micah 5.2. Micah 5.2 says, from you, Bethlehem Ephrata, will come forth one whose goings forth had been from of old. Messianic prophecy, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. It's a prophecy. It's literally fulfilled. Then there is a, a second use, which is more of a type, where uh, this is a quote also from Hosea 11, I believe. Uh, my memory fails me on that. It's been a while since I've looked at those examples. I think it's Hosea. Out of Egypt I called my people. When It's quoted historically. It's a historical event, and it's a type. It's a picture of just as Israel as a type of Christ came out of Egypt. That's fulfilled and pictured in Christ. And then you have a third use of, of uh, Old Testament prophecy, 
when there is when it's by way of application it's not a typology it's just something similar happened and they're drawing a connection by way of a pattern to and this is we studied this when we went through uh, acts 2 when peter said this is what the prophet joel spoke of well he didn't mean this was the fulfillment of what joel said because everything that happened in joel 2 was prophesied in joel 2 uh, nothing that happened that was prophesied in Joel 2 was fulfilled in, in Acts 2. And what did happen in Acts 2, which was speaking in tongues and the coming of the Holy Spirit, wasn't what was prophesied in, in Joel 2. It was similar, though, and it showed a parallel. And so this, it's that third use, which is this is like that. It's simply drawing an analogy or parallel to something in the Old Testament. And that's what's going on in this verse, is that... that uh, Paul is going back here and taking this verse and saying, those who weren't my people are now my people. In the same way, even though he's talking about Gentiles, in the same way, those who were not God's people are being brought into the family of God. And so all he's doing is making that kind of an analogy, that that third use that we've studied. Uh, Romans 9.26, And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There they shall be called the sons of the living God. That's a quote from the last part of Hosea 1.10. So this time, you only have to turn back one page, and we're at Hebrews 1.10. And in the first part of, of uh, I mean, Hosea 1.10, the first part of Hosea, what we have is, again, the condemnation stated against Israel, and because of their apostasy, uh, the wife of Hosea was supposed to have two, Gomer was supposed to have two, Two sons. One was called Lo Ruhama, mentioned in verse six, uh, which means no mercy, and the second Lo Ami, meaning not my people. Verse nine says, "Call his name Lo Ami, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God." Announcement of divine judgment. Yet, verse ten, the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered, and it shall come to pass. What does that sound like? Abrahamic covenant. So what God is doing here is reiterating the promise to Abraham that he will have descendants that will be as innumerable as the sands of the seashore, and yet, uh, and he will not forsake that. But nevertheless, the people are going to go out under divine judgment. Uh, And he, he then says at the second half of verse 10, "...in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people." There it shall be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. That's the part that's being quoted here. Uh, they will be restored to a position of blessing. But first they're going to go through a time of uh, divine discipline and divine judgment. So Romans 9, 25 and 26 include quotes from Hosea 2:23 and Hosea 1:10, And these quotes are dealing with God's plan for Israel as a nation, the judgment that came upon the nation and the blessing, the future blessing of restoration that will come upon the nation. So we're continuing to see that Paul's dealing with Israel as a national entity, not in terms of individual justification. Then we come to verse 27. And now we're going to go to Isaiah. We're going to go to Isaiah 10, 22 and 23. So now we're going to go back. Now Hosea and Isaiah lived about the same time. Their names almost sound familiar. Are sound the same, but they're different. Uh, Isaiah chapter 10, verses 22 and 23. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea. What's that terminology from? 
That's from the Abrahamic covenant. Just a reminder that God, God's promise is, is, is solid bedrock. It's not going to change. The remnant will be saved. Those who, remember earlier in Romans 9, Paul said, not all Israel is of Israel. The, the, he's focusing on there are many who are apostate, but there's a subset that are true Israel. They're, that's the remnant, the doctrine of the remnant. Comes from Isaiah 10:22. For though your people, O Israel, be as the sand of the sea, a remnant of them will return. Promise blessing. God has a future for Israel. That's his theme in Romans 9 to 11. God has not permanently forsaken his people Israel. And in verse 23, uh, which is quoted in Romans 9:28, for he will finish the work and cut short. Cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make short work upon the earth, dealing with future judgment that comes during the tribulation period. Verse, uh, Isaiah 10.23, For the Lord God of hosts will make a determined end in the midst of all the land. So what's the point here? Again, he's dealing with Israel as a nation in terms of their future destiny, showing from these quotations that God did promise a period of judgment when the nation would be out of the land, but he also promised that he would fulfill the pro- his promises to, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to David, and he would restore the nation to the land, and then they would have great blessing. Then in verse 29, again, we have a quote from Isaiah. This is from Isaiah chapter 1. So you just have to turn back about five or six pages, Isaiah chapter 1, which is a uh, a chapter that is an indictment against Israel for their apostasy. In Romans 9, 29, Paul says, And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of the Sabbath... Lord of Sabaoth. That's not Sabbath. That is the Lord of Armies, Sabaoth. That's the term that a term that is used for the armies of uh, of Israel. It's Sabaoth, and it refers to armies. Unless the Lord of the armies had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have become like Gomorrah. And so, what Paul is saying is that God left a remnant. And that remnant will uh, be restored to a place of blessing, and that remnant will be the the ones who receive the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. This is a quote from Isaiah chapter one, uh, verse nine, uh, where there is a description of all of the judgments that will come upon Judah because of apostasy. Uh, verse 7, your country is desolate, your cities are burned with fire, strangers devour your land in your presence, and it is desolate, it's overthrown by strangers. So the daughter of Zion is left as a booth and a vineyard, as a hut and a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city, unless the Lord of hosts had left us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom and we would have become like Gomorrah. Okay, again, national destiny is the issue. So then Paul, now that, that ends this section uh, for Paul, uh, he's going to go into a segue into another uh, section here, starting in verse 30. So let me summarize the argument to this point. By referring back to ideas that he had already talked about in Romans uh, 9, 6, and 7, and talking as well in relation to uh, language that, that is, uh, goes back to Jacob, I loved, Esau, I hated, it's clear that Paul is is dealing with uh, God's uh, plan for Israel, that he's not going to go back on his plan for Israel, and that he has chosen Israel for a specific destiny, 
and he has not chosen other people, other nations for that kind of a destiny. Even though Israel is currently apostate, they will eventually accept Jesus as the Messiah. Now, as a result of having established this, that from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew Scriptures, it's clear that God has predicted judgment and restoration. What are we then going to say about what's going on now with the inclusion of Gentiles into the into the church? Uh, What shall we say then, he says, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness. See, Gentiles were pagans. They weren't concerned about righteousness. But now they've responded to the gospel, and they have become righteous because when they trusted in Christ for Savior, they received the imputation of Christ's righteousness. So they've obtained to righteousness, that is, the righteousness from faith, the righteousness that comes from faith. Justification is by faith alone. Abraham was the pattern, Genesis 15:6. In Romans 9:31, but Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, that's the Mosaic law, thinking that the Mosaic law and specifically the Pharisaical interpretation of the Mosaic law would bring them righteousness, they have not attained to the law of righteousness. They can't meet it. No one has ever perfectly obeyed the Mosaic law outside of Jesus Christ. Verse 32, why? Because they did not seek it by faith. They weren't trying to gain righteousness as a result of faith, which was the pattern from the Old Testament, but they were trying to gain righteousness by the works of the law, thinking that by obeying the law, that would make them righteous. For, now he ties it to Christ, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone. This is the last verse of Romans 9. As it is written, and it's a quote from Isaiah 28:16. God said and prophesied from Isaiah 28, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. If you believe on him, you will, he will be, fulfill all of his promises. And this is a quote from the Septuagint of Isaiah 28, Verse 16. So the point that he has made in so far in Romans 9 is God has a future plan for Israel. Right now, they have rejected Christ and they are being hardened just like Pharaoh was hardened. God's not making them reject Christ. They've already chosen that. He's just encouraging them in that for a time. Doesn't lock them into negative volition. They can respond. There are incredible numbers of Jews down through the centuries who have trusted in Jesus as their Messiah. And there are many who do today, and there are you know, hundreds of thousands that will during the tribulation period. So there is, there is God has a plan, that that plan is his plan because he's the one who knows all the variables. He knows all the information in perfect omniscience. And so he knows the best plan and is working it out in history. And we can't determine or influence that plan by our behavior one way or the other because it's not based on who and what we are, but on who God is and his plan and his understanding of history. But so far, we're not talking about individual eternal destiny. We're talking about historical destinies for nations 
for the Gentiles and for the Jews and God's plan within history. So that, I hope, helps us understand when we talk about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, we talk about this passage and the potter and the potter's uh, wheel, that this has nothing at all to do with individual justification or the eternal destiny, okay? One minute for questions, maybe two. Anybody have any questions? Is it a little clearer this week than it was last week? See, that's the thing. You know, the more we study, the, it gets a little clearer, it gets a little clearer. It's a little clearer for me than, than it's been before. Um, I, this is the first time I've uh, really in detail taught through the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. So, you know, there's always something you have to learn, something you avoid as a pastor. Oh, I hope I don't get there. Lord, I just hope when I get there, I'll figure something out. And it's, and it's close to being right. Tinker. Uh, then verse 30, Gentiles is referring to uh, nations of Gentiles. Well, what's, hap- race. Yeah, what's happening now is he's talking about how Gentiles... See, the problem that the Jews had is that Paul's going to these stinking Gentiles, and they didn't like that. When, when we get to that section, I think it's in about 21 or 22 in Acts... Paul's speaking at the temple, and, and as soon as he gets to the point where he says, God, God called me to be an apostle to the Gentiles, they rioted because they were ethnocentric. To hell with the Gentiles. We're the Jews. We're God's chosen people. That's all there was. We're going to heaven because we're related to Abraham. You can't go to the Gentiles. So what's happening here is that Paul now, he's, he's finished his argument in verse 29, and he's making application of it. So what are we going to say about what's happening now with the Gentiles? Well, this is God's sovereign prerogative. This is foreshadowed from the Old Testament that God is going to include uh, Gentiles, and Gentiles will be included in the kingdom. And so he's dealing with them as a still as a group that Gentiles... Uh, who didn't pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness. Now he's going to start introducing righteousness because we get we get down. He does talk about individual justification here when he gets down to verse nine and ten of chapter ten. That if you confess with your mouth that the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. That's not justification. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness. That's justification. And with the mouth confessions made unto salvation. That's Sanctification, but probably in this case, it's deliverance for Israel because this is all about Israel. It's not about personal salvation or sanctification. And then that's sealed by the quote in uh, Romans ten thirteen: "Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved." That's a quote from Joel two thirty two, which is what the Jews do at the end of the tribulation period when they call upon Jesus to recognize him as a Messiah to come and save him. So salvation in all of these passages here primarily isn't isn't talking about sanctification. It's talking about the future deliverance of Israel and God's corporate redemption of the nation, which comes at the end of the tribulation. But we'll get into that in Chapter 10, Preview of Coming Attractions. All right. Father, thank you for this time together and pray that we might uh, think through these things, come to a better understanding of them, and that you would... Uh, work in our lives through the Holy Spirit to illuminate these truths that we might uh, have greater confidence, greater certainty, greater understanding of who you are and your plan for our lives and your plan for history. 
And, uh, Father, we continue to pray for our nation. We pray that you would, even though in this time of great apostasy, we pray that you would continue to raise up believers who will take a stand, who will fight for the truth, who will make their influence known in, in every realm of government, from a local, county, city government, all the way up uh, to the White House. And, Father, we pray that you might uh, restrain those who have an evil influence and elevate those who understand righteousness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.